Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today my guest is one of the busiest women in the outdoor adventure sports realm. Danielle Williams is the founder of Diversify Outdoors and Melanin Base Camp. She's an African-American skydiver with over 600 jumps to her name. She's a fourth generation army veteran and also a Harvard graduate. She's been featured in Outside Magazine in the Globe and Mail, and she's also an advocate for people living with disabilities. She's got a fascinating life lived. Here's her story. Danielle, most people, if they go skydiving, they do it once and that's enough for a lifetime. And really, most people don't do it at all. You've done it over 600 times. I mean, should I be concerned at this point? <laughs> Um, I think, yeah, like there's just a difference in perception um, for the skydiving community that does not even make me experience. That just means <laughs> I've been doing it for a few years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I fell in love with skydiving when I started um, back in 2011. And it's just been really a part of my identity and something I love to do on the weekends ever, ever since. Yeah. You've got some really interesting things going on. You're involved in a lot of different interesting things related to the outdoors. And I want to get into a lot of those things. But first, maybe start with some of the seeds, if you will, for, for where you're at today. You are a fourth generation Army veteran. A lot of history there in your family. <laughs> Tell me about growing up in that environment. What was being an army kid like? Um, it was a lot of fun for me. I know it's probably not something that everyone would enjoy, but I loved moving around when I was growing up. Um, my sisters were born. I've got two older sisters. They were both born in Germany. My uh -huh. brother and I were born here in the States, and I loved it. I loved you know, the idea that you could just pick up and move and kind of start over as a kid. It was just really fun and kind of gave me like a sense of adventure and like a lifelong love of travel and just getting to know new people and not not really waiting for anyone to come with you or give you permission but just kind of like a thirst for living yeah so how many places did you stay in between you know sort of the formative years if you will and where where were your different stops along the way um, let me let me think. I was born in New York, and then we were in Kansas, um, Georgia. After that, a couple different places in Virginia. My dad was briefly um, for about a year assigned in Turkey, which was a lot of fun to go visit him. Mm -hmm. And then when I joined the army in 2008, I've been kind of like all up and down the southeast. I was in back in Georgia, and then Missouri, in Kentucky and Tennessee for a while, and Iraq, back to Tennessee, um, before moving to Alabama, and then North Carolina, and uh, the Philippines for a couple years, back and forth, and then finally Maryland, where I recently was medically retired from the military last week. <laughs> okay, a lot of stops along that way. Yeah. <laughs> do, do all bases look the same, or are there distinctions between, you know, does, does the Philippines look different from, uh, you know, Maryland, which looks different from New York? I mean, how different uh -huh. does any base look from one another? Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty different, I would say, in that regard. 
We don't actually have bases in the Philippines. So while I was living there, we would be located on a Philippine Army base or a Philippine Navy base. So we don't have any U.S. bases over there. Not yeah. anymore. Yeah, okay. um, but yeah, they were all kind of like different scenarios. I was doing different things at the time. When I was in Iraq, I was doing construction. Like nothing sexier than that. <laughs> but it enabled me to travel a lot and kind of like learn from the culture and get like a sense of the area where we were located. And then in the U.S., my probably my favorite part of like being in and around military races in, in the U.S. growing up and then when I was an adult was just the access to the outdoors. Like conservation is kind of like in a sneaky way, like built into, you know, part and parcel of being in the military and being in and around military bases. So there are miles and miles of, of trails that you can kind of like run or walk or hike and explore. And um, yeah, that was really my favorite part, just having that access to the outdoors. Yeah. So that access, uh, what was that like? I mean, what, what defined the outdoors for you then as a kid? What did getting outside mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I come from a family where like running was kind of our thing. Um, when I was growing up, my mom was really big into trail running. At the time, she and my dad were both in the army. She got out a little bit later. So from the time I was a kid, I started running with her first, like around a track. And then we would like run through neighborhoods. And then later I got into trail running, did running in high school and a little bit in college. So I've always had this like lifelong love and enjoyment from running. Kind of fast forward to where I am now, I can no longer run, but I still really enjoy like just being in nature and kind of like taking it at my own pace mm -hmm. and um, just enjoying the outdoors. Yeah. How did you decide that you would follow in the family footsteps and, and join the army? I think um, it's like nothing that was ever really talked about directly, but it was always kind of this underlying assumption that we would join the military because that's what my dad did and that's what his dad did and that's what, you know, great granddad did. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of like always there and I never really considered doing anything else from the time I was growing up through high school and even through college, I just, I had never really considered anything else. I, I think it's like the family business, right? Like yeah. whether it's the military or I don't know, it could be something different. It was just part of our culture, part of our, our everyday life and part of my identity. So like I wanted to do what my dad and mom did and um, I never really considered any other options. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned medically retired a week ago, is that right? Uh-huh. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a transition. It must be a transition. How, <laughs> how does that, uh, how's that feeling? I joke about it because I've been in the Army for 10 and a half years, but when I talk to people, I'm like, what you don't realize is I've really been in the Army for 32 years because I'm 32 and like that has always been my culture. That has always been my identity, identifying as an Army brat and then identifying as a military officer. So, um, yeah, it, <laughs> I don't think it feels real yet. Like, I still live very close to a military base, and, you know, I still see my friends who many of them are military. So, <laughs> I don't know. It still feels like I'm in this culture, and I don't think it's something you can ever really walk away from after spending 32 years in it. I think I'll always have friends who are in the military. Um, I have a brother who's still in the military, a sister who's still in the reserves. 
And yeah, it's just kind of like a part of your identity. It sticks with you. Yeah, you're probably not changing like your sleeping habits or the way you fold and no. iron your clothes and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> nope, <laughs> yeah. not planning on it. Uh, when did you first try skydiving? Um, I tried it in 2011. I had recently returned from a deployment in Iraq. And even though, you know, I wasn't like doing anything super crazy, we're building roads and repairing culverts, while you're like kind of in a war zone, you have this sort of like feeling. And when you get back to the States, a lot of people look for it in different avenues. There are bad avenues like drugs, um, which, you know, not encouraging. Um, but there are, you see people do different things. People will buy a motorcycle and, you know, drive really fast or they'll try an extreme sport or they're just doing something to search for that alive feeling, for lack of a better word. Right. And it's kind of like the feeling that anything could happen, that you can't take life for granted because you might be here one day and gone the next. And I think when I first did like my first skydive in 2011, like that's a little bit of what I was looking for. And I thought I would check that box one time and then kind of like walk away because mm -hmm. I didn't envision myself as a skydiver. I didn't know any people who looked like me. Um, who were skydivers, I thought, you know, it's like maybe for older people wearing like the big Elvis costumes. I don't even know where I got that from. Probably, <laughs> uh, probably a movie. Um, so I went to a drop zone in Kentucky, um, not too far from where I lived in Tennessee. And um, they had like a little Cessna 182, which is like a small four seater plane. And so we got up in the plane and it was myself and my like tandem instructor who I was going to be attached to. And then it was one other guy, and I didn't know him. And right before the door opened, before we got out, this other person was like, hey, so I'm new to this drop zone. Can you show me where the landing area is? And that just <laughs> blew my mind. I'm like, hey, how do you get in a plane and like go up to 12,000 feet, and you don't even know where you're going to land? And then B, like, I didn't know you could like skydive without being attached to somebody. I thought like skydiving was just, you know, for tandem mm -hmm. skydivers, like who do it one time. Right. So um, like he jumped out and then we jumped out not long after and it was awesome, right? It's like everything you didn't think it would be. I, I hate roller coasters and I have a fear of heights, <laughs> even at 32. Yeah. And um, I thought it would be just like this thing where like your stomach is in your throat and like you just feel awful and it wasn't like that at all it was very very peaceful and like very calm especially once the canopy opened and you're kind of like floating back to earth and when we got down on the ground like I asked my um, instructor like who is that guy and he's like oh he's just a he's a fun jumper who is new to the drop zone he's just visiting and that kind of like changed everything for me, not right away, because it took me about another month before I was like out with friends randomly. Mm -hmm. And I had a friend of a friend introduce me to someone. And he said like, hey, this guy, like he's a fun jumper. I know you went skydiving last month. And this guy, he does it for fun, like all the time, just on the weekend, whenever he wants. And so I talked to that individual and, and was like learning more about it. And um, I'm kind of like a lot of people who get into 
any type of like adventure sport or extreme sport, um, a lot of us, we do it when we're at a transition period or like an inflection point in our life. Mm. And I was no different. Like I had just gotten back from a deployment. I was like looking for something. And I was also about to move to another um, military base. So I was like, this is going to be my gift to myself. I'm going to go visit my sister in North Carolina. She was in the military at the time as well. And I'm just going to like learn how to skydive in one week. I'm going to do it. (laughs) And... So I did it. Like I, I um, drove down to North Carolina to visit her, and there's a drop zone there. And um, yeah, like we had a week of really good weather, and I, you know, had different instructors, and I learned how to skydive, and I got like my certification. And I'm like, okay, this is cool. What do I do next? And um, luckily, like that just kind of started a new period in my life where like I, I moved to Alabama. And it's lower Alabama, so it's kind of like a great area to live if you don't mind driving because you can drive to like Pensacola, Mm -hmm. Panama City, Destin, drive to Louisiana, drive to Atlanta. So like every weekend I was like on the road, I would take like my parachute, like my gear with me and I would just drive to a different drop zone. And I would always have like my tent in the back of my car and I never used it because skydivers are known for like this culture of hospitality. Mm. Um, So I would always be like staying with somebody in their camper or in like a loft or um, bunk room. And it was just a really incredible time in my life. I loved it. I was always on the road, always meeting new people, just having these like wild experiences, which probably people have like in college or in high school, but I did not. So for me, it was just like a lovely, wonderful time of kind of becoming more confident, but also going through this kind of like transition period, adjusting back to life, you know, after the deployment and kind of really just getting my wings for lack of a better um words. So for me, it was really empowering. Yeah, yeah. Did you jump right into that hospitality aspect of the community? Or did that take, you know, a, a first experience uh, to know, oh, this is the way things go in this in this group, and I'm okay to, you know, stay in somebody's camper van or this or that? Like, yeah, I think... <laughs> I think I kind of like jumped right into it. It was weird at first. I was like the quiet person at the drop zone with like the wide eyes, just kind of like looking around and and soaking everything in and kind of learning what was what and learning about skydiving culture. But I kind of slipped into it pretty easily. And it was awesome. Like I remember jumping at this one drop zone in Mississippi and I had just gotten there and like one thing that's part of skydiving culture, they're called DZ kids, drop zone kids who have grown up around the drop zone. Their parents either work there or they skydive there frequently. So um, like you would think it's just, oh, 18 through 34 year old men, like just doing their thing. It's not like that. Mm. You have everyone from kids to octogenarians who have been skydiving for longer than I've been alive. So I remember showing up at this drop zone in Mississippi and this like eight year old girl approaches me. She's like, Hey, you're new here. Um, we have an extra bed in our camper. Do you want to stay with us? (laughs) A, like, I don't know if your mom would want you offering that to a complete (laughs) and total stranger, but, um, thank you for offering. And that's just like how the culture is. So I, I really tried to like embrace it and have a lot of different experiences and, you know, people, 
I think, start skydiving for different reasons. And, you know, maybe it's because you saw a video on YouTube of like a, I don't know, like wingsuit base jumper and like you want to do that. And that's cool. And maybe it's because you're going through a transition or coming out of a relationship. There are all different reasons why we try something new, right? But I think I didn't stay with skydiving because I thought, oh, this is really cool or like this is something new I can learn and like, you know, feel competent and confident in it. I think I stayed because of the people, Mm. um, because of the traditions, you know, it's a little bit of drinking culture, but we have like weird transitions. Um, Like after you complete your hunter's jump, you get pied. Like we just have all kind of like weird rules that have been around probably since like the 1960s and 70s when skydiving culture really kind of came about. And that has always really attracted me to the sport. And even when I was in areas where there wasn't that strong community, that also kind of encouraged me, okay, what can I do to contribute? What can I do now that I have a little bit more experience and I have, you know, a couple hundred jumps to make other people feel welcome, to feel included and to, you know, make it so that other people can experience kind of the joy that I felt from really dirtbagging it from, (laughs) you know. From just having a good time and traveling and and meeting new people and going to these different skydiving events. Yeah. Take me through the preparation for a jump. Like what are are all the things that have to happen before you're able to jump out of a plane and, and do it safely? That's a good point because people think skydiving is like, oh, you spend all the time in the air and you don't. You spend most of your time packing on like a packing mat in a hangar mm. or sometimes in the grass. Um, so like I'll show up at the drop zone, you know, hopefully meet up with friends or see whoever's there. And you kind of um, group together based on what you want to do in the air. So there are some people who fly, um, we call it belly to earth or RW, relative work. And there are some people who fly in a different orientation, which is called like free flying, where you might be flying in a head up position where you're sitting or standing in the air, or you might be flying in a head down position. So that's kind of how you um, like sort yourself. So if I want to do like like a head down jump or if I want to do a... um, like a big belly jump, which is the old school way of skydiving. Like right. I'll find people to jump with. And then we go through our dive plan for the professional guys or people who are like more serious or on like a semi-professional team. They'll um, dirt dive it or get on creepers, which look like um, like skateboards kind of like that you lie flat down on. And then that way you can move on the ground and kind of um, – lay out what your jump would look like in the air. And, you know, there are other ways to dirt dive it as well. So you kind of like run through your your dive plan. Um, You put your gear on. You do three safety checks. One, before you get on the plane, you have someone else check your gear. So they're checking um, like your – what do you call it? <laughs> no, I can't remember the words. They're checking like, your bridle, your pilot chute. They're just different parts of your gear okay. that that we run through to make sure that um, you know you're safe to jump and that you're not going to imperil yourself or anybody else in the air. So you, everybody boards the plane. So we kind of there are different jump planes. You might be on a small plane with only four people. You might be on a King Air, which fits a lot more people, or uh, a Twin Otter. Um, it just really depends on your drop zone. If it's like the first load of the day, which we call the wind dummy load. 
if you're a newer jumper, you probably don't want to be on that load because during that load, the pilot or whoever's in charge at the drop zone may be kind of like figuring out winds. And mm. winds are really important, right? If winds are too high, you may not be jumping depending on your skill level. Or um, if they haven't figured out kind of like the wind line yet, you may land off the drop zone. And depending on your experience level, you kind of don't want to do that. Yeah. Uh, so like you board the plane, the plane takes off and it's depending on the plane it takes maybe 20 minutes to get up to altitude it may take 10 and um, once you get to altitude you do an, another gear check um, and then one right before you get out of the plane so it's pretty quiet like some people listen to music some people are joking around just people are chilling or going over their dive plan and then maybe about uh, say you're getting out at like 12,000 feet, maybe at about 10,000 feet, the plane will just come to life. Everyone starts moving around, checking their gear, you know, check your like um, cutaway handle, your reserve handle, make sure everything is properly in place, check your pilot chute, check any last minute kind of safety items off your list to make sure that you're going to have a safe jump because skydiving, I forget who said this recently, but people like to say that it's like safer than driving, mm -hmm. which is true, but it's still a dangerous sport. It's a dangerous sport that can be done safely. Um, so we try to make sure that we don't get too over uh, confident or kind of like get sloppy or lazy about, you know, checks. Uh, so after that, like people leave the plane in a certain order and it depends on whether you're wingsuiting or doing RW, which again is like when your belly is like flat to earth or during free flying right. that determines uh, how much space you have in between the different groups and then what order you leave in. And usually at the very back of the plane, which is actually the front of the plane closest to the pilot, are the tandem instructors and, and their students. So yeah, after that, you're like out in free fall, falling about 120 miles per hour, maybe fast depending on what orientation you're flying in and that's kind of like the fun part but <laughs> you still have to pay attention because you get to a point depending on what altitude you want to pull at where you have to deploy your parachute mm -hmm. and that's kind of like your pucker factor because okay I was having a lot of fun oh dang I need to like make sure everything goes well so you wave off so people above you can get out of the way if they're directly like above you which they right. shouldn't be yeah. so you break off you track away you wave off and then you, you deploy your parachute and hopefully everything goes well and that you did a good job packing and you weren't being sloppy and if it doesn't you know you have like your series of um emergency procedures you can go through to deal with the malfunction it's a lot easier than flying because there's really one option for dealing with the major malfunction which is to cut away your parachute and to land safely under your reserve but yeah, I don't, hopefully that didn't make it too boring uh, or too technical. It's a lot of fun, but yeah, there's some safety considerations that go into it. Um, probably things that you won't see on YouTube because people don't really go over it. But if you are at the drop zone, yeah, you have like your internal checklist of things you have to go through to have a safe jump. Right. Are you, uh, what kind of diver are you? Are you the RW? Are you the head first, feet first? Yeah, I love RW. I've been doing RW for, oh, good, goodness, eight years now. Yeah. And I really like it. I like doing four-way RW. Um, but I also started free-flying, I think, a couple years ago. So I like that as well. Mostly like head-up stuff. Um, though recently I started flying head-down. 
I fly head down in like a wind tunnel. That's kind of like where I do most of my work on it. Uh-huh. Um, so you can work with the coach and like they can point out what you're doing wrong. Um, but I also like doing um, small head down jumps in the air as well. So I'm not like super crazy, like talented. Like you'll see people who are either professional or are semi-professional, compete on a team, um, go to nationals every year. I have not done any of that, but more power to them. That's really exciting, like really motivating to see um, people, especially women and especially like women of color to mm-hmm. see them just, yeah, just killing it and performing really well and at um, professional levels. That's maybe a good introduction to this next part. How did Team Black Star Skydivers begin? Ooh, Team Black Star. We started in 2014. Um, at that point, I had been only skydiving for three years, and I knew like one or two, maybe three other um, um, black skydivers just through traveling around and going to different drop zones. And so a couple of us decided that we were going to meet up at a boogie, which is a skydiving event. This the term that we use for it. Mm-hmm. Um, that was in Fitzgerald, Georgia. And it's a really fun event. It's not like at a proper drop zone where they um, like fly jumpers every day. It's at like an RV park with a big old field um, next to a municipal airport in Georgia. So once a year on St. Patrick's Day weekend, every year, everyone converges on the spot. So people bring RVs, they set up tents, you'll see like rows and rows of tents from the air. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we just converge for a weekend of skydiving, of bonfires, of a little bit of drinking, of having fun and just enjoying like skydiving culture. And so back in 2014, a few of us, I think we were, I think seven total, decided that we were going to do an unofficial um like record jump to see how many black people we could get together mm-hmm. in the air uh, in free fall to like hold hands in the air. And it's that term is actually called a star formation when people are in a big circle holding hands. And you've probably seen it on like motivational or demotivational posters around work if I don't know if you work yeah, in an yeah. office. Sure. So we're like, we're going to do that. And um, yeah, we got uh, uh, like skydiving videographer to film it. And we had a lot of fun. And from that team, Black Star was born as kind of like a pun. And we just kind of ran with it. Um, A couple years later, what, it's been five years. And we've grown from that original group of seven people, including our videographer, to over 270 people in six different countries. Uh So it's just been like this really cool journey of using social media, which is a great networking tool, especially for finding people who, you know, were not like the majority. Skydiving is like overwhelmingly white and it's 87% male, at least here in the US. And so sometimes it can be hard to find people if who look like you if you don't like do a lot of traveling or international traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, so for us, like social media was definitely a great way to grow, to kind of like spread the word, get people excited about diversity in like a low threat way. Um, especially like here in the US, um, it can be really difficult for people to talk about race because like we don't grow up talking about it. Like mm-hmm. it's just something we don't talk about. So for us, like it was always like, hey, we're just going to be positive, like celebrate. Um, we do an event once a year, which we call our unofficial record jump. And um, it's like held at a different drop zone every year. So we just like we barbecue, we have fun, we, uh, you know, just meet up, we have our T-shirts, do our thing, have stickers and patches. And like we celebrate skydiving culture and hopefully inspire like, you know, the next generation of young um 
not just black, because we are a very diverse organization. We have African-American, Latinx, um, Asian, indigenous. We have all different types of people in the group. But the idea is to get people excited about diversity and skydiving. And I think, like, hopefully it's a direction that the sport, at least here in the U.S., embraces overall. And hopefully other adventurous sports kind of like get behind that sort of enthusiasm as well, because we don't want to be like the last refuge of people who didn't adapt to the fact that the U.S. is now 40 percent um, folks who identify as ethnic minorities. Right. And mm. will continue to become increasingly diverse as time goes on. So instead of, um, you know, some people might feel uncomfortable with that or not want to talk about that. But for us, like that is a good thing. We don't want our sport to become irrelevant right. because we're not reaching out to new communities and because we're not getting new communities excited about what we do. So yeah, for me, it's just been a really fun like social network as well, but also a way to talk in like a low threat sort of way about race and gender and gender identity in a sport that is sometimes really difficult to talk about those mm. things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the United States. I don't know that Canada is any better at, at talking about those things. I think they're uh, they're difficult for anybody to to bring up, yeah. but, but necessary too. Yeah. Five years—that's uh, that's pretty much five years, almost to the day. Then, I mean, we're, we just had St. <laughs> Patrick's recently. That's kind of cool. Yep, exactly. There you go, a milestone. Uh, you you mentioned uh, uh, the outdoors world, uh, a very male dominated space, and typically white male dominated too. And I and I know the army. I suspect is uh, is at least similarly, if it if it's like most of uh, of other parts of society, I would imagine there's some of that as well. How have you navigated those two worlds, the outdoors world and the army? Uh, as a woman of color in those places? I think um, over time, like I've seen some personal growth. I think maybe like a lot of other women when I started out, uh, especially in the army, like I didn't want to be like handpicked for any women's initiative or any like um, like ethnic diversity initiative. Um, I didn't see value in that because I, I knew my peers didn't see value in that either, mm. right? I just wanted to be one of the guys like... I didn't have a lot of female friends initially um, or women friends. And like that wasn't a priority for me. I just wanted to fit in. I just wanted to be a green suitor, which is uh, like an expression that we use um, in the military. Like we don't see race. Everyone is, you know, we all wear green. Totally not true. Everybody sees race. It's kind of like a natural thing, right, to pick out that salient uh I don't know the word for it, but like way to distinguish people. Mm -hmm. Um, And even though race is a social construct, it's something that people put a lot of meaning and and value in. So it's important to kind of like um, to talk about that. And so for me, initially, I didn't want to talk about that. And same thing for when I started skydiving. Um, You know, skydiving is no different from other adventure sports, which are no different from society. People like to say that um, nature's colorblind. I'm sure nature is colorblind, but nature is inhabited (laughs) by people. And whatever issues we have, you know, in cities or in the towns that we live in, guess what? We bring that into the outdoors. Mm -hmm. And I think initially, like, I didn't want to deal with that either. Like, I was just really excited when I found skydiving. Part of it was like a little bit of burnout from, um, you know, being in these kind of very rigid military environments where, um, you know, it it wasn't like this sort of like fun culture of relaxation and hospitality. It was very kind of rigid. 
And I think when I initially started skydiving, I just wanted it to to be this like very positive thing that had no faults, right? Mm. And like we call that now, um, now we call it positive vibes culture. And you see it in skydiving and you see it in a lot of other communities as well, where at least in skydiving, the dominant narrative is, oh my gosh, before my life was like really boring or was just like missing something. And then I started skydiving and now my life is perfect and couldn't be better, right? Yeah. But that's like, I'm not saying that's not true, but that's a partial truth, right? Because just like whatever societal issues we deal with on the outside are still present in these outdoor communities and in these conservation communities, um, personal things we deal with, whether it's like the death of a family member or a debilitating illness or cancer or, you know, a mental health issue, depression, like, just because you are wearing a parachute or just because you like snowboarding in the backcountry, you still deal with all of those challenges. They don't magically go away. So I think for me, there was definitely like a journey from um, just wanting to escape and wanting to do positive vibes culture 24-7 and not deal with anything else uh-huh. to like having my eyes opened a little bit. Like, yeah, I love this community, but, you know, like racism that I see in the rest of society, I experienced that in skydiving as well right Mm -hmm. and like before I didn't really want to talk about it because it kind of interfered with my positive vibes only narrative like okay now it's been a couple years and I have you know more experience and I've done a lot of traveling and like these are kind of like some of the things that bother me so there was definitely an an evolution I would say of (laughs) of learning to like I can still love this community and talk about ways that we need to improve I can still love this community and like you know, want it to be better. I can still love this community. And for example, recently, my the drop zone that I jump at now, um, and this has nothing to do with the character of the drop zone or the lovely, amazing people who jumped there, but recently lost two people to, um, to suicide. Mm. And that's like a serious issue. And it's an issue we don't really talk enough about in skydiving. And I'm sure our community is no different from other adventure sports communities where it's really hard for people to kind of like bring up these subjects. And it's not just because people are going to tell you to shut up and jump or shut up and climb or shut up and like ski. I don't know. It's, it's more than that. It's, you know, it's partly that, but it's partly just, we don't always have the tools to talk about these like very serious things. We don't have the tools to talk about them, you know, in society. We don't really have the, the words to talk about them in the outdoors as well. So yeah, I've definitely had like a lot of growth on the on the subject. And now I think being a part of Team Black Star Skydivers has kind of given me this outlet to talk about these issues with people I know are supportive and who also have this like shared culture of loving the outdoors and, you know, loving adventure sports. I'm also active in Melanin Base Camp and that has kind of given me an outlet for writing about those issues. Melanin Base Camp is an outdoor diversity blog where we blog about gender, gender identity, race, ethnicity in the outdoors and a lot of other things. And yeah, it's it's been kind of like a relief for me to like not only have the words to talk about these serious issues, um, but to have a community that is incredibly supportive and to just have space as well to be heard and to kind of put words to things that maybe I've been feeling for a long time, but didn't really know how to, to how to voice them. Yeah, yeah. You know, a representation is important in any space. And uh, it makes me wonder, you know, who were the who were the people that you were able to look up to? Who were your role models to show 
you know, what you wanted to do could be done when you when you found the outdoor space, when you found the adventure sport uh, world. Uh, you know, who are those people that you that you were able to turn to? I think now within the skydiving community, I have like a number of people I look up to. One is Jeanette Lefkowitz, who is a professional skydiver. Um, on Skydive Chicago Rhythm XP, which is a professional team. And um, she and Courtney Lee have recently created, I think it's WSLN, the Women in Skydiving Leadership Network. So um, it's been really cool to see different movements happening parallel to each other, but kind of like separate as well. And that movement, along with Sisters in Skydiving, which is a separate um, kind of movement within the community to give women a bigger voice to like allow women to find connections to find mentors and like that has been really encouraging to see that happen I think also within the outdoor community when I started Team Black Star in 2014 and then later in 2016 started Melanin Base Camp there like wasn't a common landing page kind of there wasn't like a way to find each other I knew there were people who looked like me doing different outdoorsy type things. I didn't know how to find how to find anybody. <laughs> but again, there's been like so much growth in the past couple years via social media. And social media has connected me to amazing, amazing individuals, none of whom skydive, um, uh -huh. by the way, who are all um, just very strong advocates for um, underrepresented people and for people with marginalized identities in climbing or, you know, in mountain biking or in these different, like, um, in these different outdoor communities. And um, one of them is Melise Edwards, who's a climber based in Seattle, um, also a neuroscientist. And it's been just really motivating to follow her. I've never met the woman, but to follow her largely through social media as she is very outspoken about dealing about confronting like directly racism and sexism within the climbing community. And that was also kind of a bit of a relief. I'm like, okay, well, we're not the only community that like has issues that we're dealing with. Yeah. And it's really encouraging to see women um, who are just very outspoken and like very brave, right? And, and speaking directly on these issues, especially online, right? Online sometimes like attracts the, it brings out like the worst yep. of everyone, <laughs> right? It's like... Being online is kind of like being a magnet for trolls, especially if you're a woman mm. um, or have a marginalized gender identity, especially if you are a woman of color, right? Mm. Um, and to see women of color like Melise, to see queer women of color like Rahawa in, um, I think she's in the, in the Bay Area, who write about their experiences in the outdoors from like a very intersectional perspective, right? Because they're dealing with sexism, dealing with homophobia, dealing with racism, and still love the outdoors, right? This kind of like concept of we're taking up space, we're not going anywhere. We love these communities. We're going to make them better, right? You're going to keep hearing from us, so kind of get used to us. Um, I just love... I love seeing people who are really bold because sometimes I don't feel like as bold, right? Like I love writing about these issues, but you know, sometimes I'm at the drop zone and I hear something and I'm like, Oh my God, please just, <laughs> I don't want to deal with this today. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. So it's, it's really like very inspiring to hear um, from, from people who are bold day after day and confronting these issues and, and making them everyone's issue, right? Racism is not like, it's not a black people problem. Racism is not an indigenous community problem. Racism is 
a societal problem that we all have to take part in in healing. And we all have to take part in in not just being nicer, right? Because I think especially for those people who maybe have had the privilege of not having to be directly confronted with racism in their life, right? Sometimes sometimes the immediate response or reaction is, well, I'm a nice person. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like racism. I don't like seeing my friends get hurt. I'm just going to treat everyone the same and and be nicer. And But that's not the solution, right? Because racism is a systemic issue. It has to do with how our society was constructed. And, um, you know, it's going to take a bigger response than just being a nice person. Like, that is, that is not the antidote to racism. Being anti-racist and dismantling um, oppressive systems is the antidote to racism. And, and seeing, pe- seeing people who are, like, willing to say that, willing to say that online where, mm-hmm. like, no one is safe, um... But yeah, like that has just been incredibly inspiring to see. So yeah, there are many women of color, um, a lot of whom I have not met, but whom I know just from being in this online community of Mellon Base Camp and also of Diversify Outdoors, from seeing parallel efforts, um, seeing like what Brothers of Climbing has been doing on the East Coast with Brown Girls Climb um, in, in the U.S., from seeing um, First Nations leaders in Canada, from seeing Indigenous leaders in the U.S. Like, it's just really inspiring. And I love, um, you know, the Internet can be a scary place. But (laughs) the the great part of it is, like, it makes our world seem so much smaller. It's so much easier to connect with people um, who live on the opposite side of the world, right, who are doing the same thing, who are facing similar struggles. And, yeah, like, that part has been really encouraging and has helped with my own personal growth of, yeah, I'm no longer trying to be one of the guys. Like, that's just not me, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it has helped me kind of grow up and um, feel more confident about speaking out, Um, feel more confident about when, you know, people's kind of knee-jerk reaction is, well, if you don't like it, you can go somewhere else, right? Well, I'm not going somewhere else. Like, this is my community, and I'm going to speak up, and I'm going to do what I can to make this community better. I'm going to hold people accountable. I'm not going anywhere. And I think, yeah, like, I, I would not have had that personal growth without the leadership and without um, being inspired by so many other women of color and queer women of color who have been doing this for a lot longer than me. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the internet. I mean, like the, that's simultaneously the best and the worst thing about the internet is oh, it yeah. puts you in touch with everybody else, but it puts you in touch with everybody else, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. It's uh, the gift and the curse, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned Melanin Base Camp already. That's uh, that's really what I have to thank for, for finding out about you in the first place. A, a good friend of mine, uh, Palmer Vaughn is his name. He's a rock climber and skier and surfer. And I'd see his pictures. He'd be in the mountains of British Columbia and he'd be hashtagging Melanin Base Camp. And so I was wondering, you know, what's all that about? Uh, <laughs> what, what were you what were you doing with Melanin Base Camp that was different from Team Black Star Skydivers? What you wanted to do differently or, or you know, accomplish differently with, with Melanin Base Camp? I think Team Black Star Skydivers is really about the skydiving community. And like, that's kind of all I knew for a while. And that was cool. And then, um, like, I got back from another deployment in around 2015. Oh, yeah, that was right before my life fell apart. (laughs) (laughs) In 2015, I got back from the Philippines. And I was like, okay, this is cool. I like skydiving, like meeting other people who look like me. I wonder what you know, the experience is like for other people who look like me who don't skydive, who maybe climb or who hike or who do other outdoor activities or maybe involved in conservation. And um, so I like did some digging on social media and like I 
had gotten on Instagram like recently and I couldn't find anybody. Like there was no common landing page. There was no way for us to find each other. Um, so I would like filter through like generic kind of like climbing hashtags, generic kind of like surfing hashtags. And I would, um, I would like look for people and find their profile and be like, Hey, <laughs> come join Melanite Base Camp. I'm starting this new thing. Use our hashtag. <laughs> and it it's was like, like, it was really slow going. Right. It's like, want to join my club or start, I'm starting. Yeah, club. <laughs> it was, it was like that kind of level that, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was that level. Uh-huh. And, um, even now, like there are people I know who, you know, in the past few years, um, were like, Hey, how did you find me? And I'm like, well, I was looking, I, I was literally looking for you. You know, I didn't know you were out there, but I knew people like you were probably out there. So I was looking for you. Um, so slowly but surely, um, started building this community, reposting people's photos um, on Instagram. And um, yeah, that I started that in February of 2016. And um, right now that hashtag has been used over 20,000 times. Later on in November of 2017, you know, by then I had a couple of friends who were doing different things that had to do with diversity in the outdoors and in adventure sports. And so like I had this idea, I'm like, we're going to do, we're going to level up, right? We're going to make this like this tent a little bit bigger um, for Melanin Base Camp, which is primarily focused on um, reposting like photos of people of color mm-hmm. in the outdoors, at least the Instagram account. Um, so like... I'm like, I'm going to call it Diversify Outdoors. So like I got the, I got the, what do you call it? The URL. Mm-hmm. And um, I was at a conference at that time in Jackson Hole, Wyoming with a, a bunch of people that I looked up to and respected, like Mikhail Martin from um, Brothers of Climbing, Shelma June from um, Hey Flash Foxy, um, Ambreen Tarek from Brown People Camping, all of whom are either entrepreneurs or advocates, influencers who are using kind of their space on social media to talk about diversity in the outdoors, sometimes from a deeply personal perspective in the case of Ambreen and other times uh, like Jenny Brusa from Unlikely Hikers, they're using their um, kind of influence to spotlight um, queer hikers or hikers who identify as um, people of color or identify as, you know, different marginalized identities. And that was really cool. And um, so I started Diversify Outdoors in November of 20... No, that's not true. I started Diversify Outdoors in (laughs) January of 2018. And uh, yeah, like uh, at the same time, we launched this like coordinated media campaign to get people excited about the hashtag. And it was kind of cool because, um, you know, a lot of people like maybe follow this account or that account, but had no idea we all knew each other. I'm like, yeah, we know each other. Uh So we launched it all at the same time and it created like a quite a bit of buzz and like now that hashtag diversify outdoors has been used over 30,000 times and is just insanely growing right and so now if I look back and compare where we were in 2016 when I started Melanin Base Camp to now it's completely different like now we have this community where if you are you know, if you identify as, um, you know, queer or identify as fat, disabled, differently abled as a person of color, 
and um, you're, you're on social media, it's pretty easy for you to find other people who look like you. And like none of what we were doing occurred in a vacuum. Obviously, like at the same time, you have this uptick in like body positivity um, posting and influencers who are dealing directly with that. You have like all these parallel movements, like the black travel movement is like growing insanely, right? So the timing was just really convenient. And I think it allowed all of us to not only find each other, but to like work on our parallel efforts to um, increase representation, to get people who may have never really considered themselves as an outdoorsy person, to get them excited about the outdoors. Yeah. So it's just, it's been a really cool experience to be part of that and in any way. And yeah. And I hope Hopefully your listeners, if they haven't checked it out before, please check it out. Diversifyoutdoors.com is a great way to find groups in your community, um, groups that you may identify with, want to get involved with, many of whom do hiking meetups. Um, Jenny Brusso, no, not Jenny. Shelma June has like a women's climbing um, event festival, twice yeah. a year. Yeah, festival, the Women's Climbing Festival um, in Chattanooga in Bishop, California, and is now launching like an all-gender climbing festival as well. So, so much going on. It's just really cool to see. Um, yeah, so it's just all about community building, about increasing representation, about um, seeing a familiar face and maybe not feeling like you're the only one. Uh, you mentioned something towards the beginning of there, uh, coming back <laughs> from the Philippines, and that was the time when your life fell apart. And that's something we haven't talked about yet, but I'm suspecting that's that you're talking about the, the fever you contracted there and um, and how that changed things for you. Yeah. Um, so I got sick when I was over there and I didn't think it was that much of a big deal. Um, I was in an area where um, I could have gotten access to like higher level medical care, but I didn't think I needed it. And I came back to the U.S. and like maybe two months later, like really weird things started happening. Um, and it took about a year to get diagnosed probably because, you know, if you're under the age of like 75 and in the medical field, you probably have never encountered anyone with rheumatic fever if you're in the U.S. or Canada or Western Europe. Mm -hmm. If I had stayed in the Philippines, probably would have gotten diagnosed a lot sooner because it's actually more common there and in other parts of the world. Um, so yeah, like I was still trying to stay pretty active, but, um, I was really sick. I had like a lot of swelling in my joints, didn't know what was going on. Like, I feel like a, a really old person. I went from like, you know, trail runner, um, skydiver, like super athletic overnight to, um, I was pretty quickly was on a walker and I was on that walker for three years. And like, for me, that was incredibly demoralizing. Oddly enough, coincided with me doing a lot of it coincided with me becoming really active on social media and, and starting like these websites, melaninbasecamp.com, um, teamblackstar.com and diversifyoutdoors.com. And yeah, so it kind of like ironic. It came from a really sad place because I was this very active person who was no longer being very active. Mm. And in that year it took for me to get diagnosed and get on antibiotics. Um, during that year, like I just couldn't do what I was used to doing like I was kind of cut off from like my normal like social groups um you know was in and out of the hospital eventually came up to Maryland from where I was living in the time which was in North Carolina and um yeah so even while I was in the hospital I would like have my phone I would be on social media I'm like oh I'm pretty lonely I'm pretty sick uh, let me get on social media to see like what other people are doing mm -hmm. and um 
yeah, I would have my computer in the hospital working on the website. So all of it came from like a pretty low place in my life where, um, you know, it was eventually diagnosed with rheumatic fever. And from that also developed a movement disorder called Sydenham's chorea. And so I was just like probably at my lowest point in terms of like self-esteem, in terms of like confidence, in terms of like quality of life as I was adjusting to sickness and then eventually adjusting to disability. Yeah. Um, like now I, I do identify as, um, as a disabled woman or differently abled, depending on how you say it. Right. Um, but yeah, that was kind of like a, it was kind of a rough journey. So I was trying to pour myself into anything as sort of a distraction. So I was like kind of insanely busy on online because you know my life was not super great kind of like in person and I was just kind of like that was my way of coping with that so in a way I I guess it was a good thing I hate saying this but I guess it was a <laughs> good thing <laughs> that I got sick and that actually ended my military career because what came out of it is this community that you know I I wouldn't necessarily I would not necessarily have had otherwise um so yeah, I'm trying to spin this and say positive. <laughs> well, I, it's I, a I think you've you've made positives out of it for sure. And I, I think what is impressive is, you know, again, if we talk about representation, uh, the the community of people with disabilities is not often seen represented. I think in the outdoors spaces and in, in adventure sports spaces, and so I think that is uh, really commendable for you to to be a part of that in um, in showing that you know life doesn't end uh, with a disability, but that there's still ways of getting out there and, and enjoying life and, and, and doing whatever you still would have wanted to do beforehand. Yeah, for sure. What is next for you with all of these things that you've done already? Uh, if there's things, uh, and we'll wrap up with this, if there's anything that you're looking forward to uh, coming up next. I think um, as far as what is next, I have no idea. Um, I'm still trying to figure that part out and I'm kind of open to not knowing, which is weird. Like for someone who grew up always knowing what she wanted to do, which was join the military. And for someone who was in a very highly like structured organization for 10 and a half years where you always know what's coming next. And like, you always have like your five and your 10 year plan and everything is kind of structured. It's been a bit of a challenge, but I, I do know what I want to focus on, which is growing Melanin Base Camp, continuing to grow this community and investing time, continuing to invest time and, and money into it. Because maybe for the first time in my life, like outside of, you know, joining the military, it's given me like a very clear purpose and kind of like very clear intent about what I want to become and kind of, and what cause I, I feel like strongly aligned to. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, I'd like to write more about disability, kind of like what you said. It's kind of this like juggling your different identities, right? Some people mm. do it a lot better. Some people like myself are not as great about it, right? I normally don't write about being a disabled person. I just don't. Um, it's something I'm still, you know, trying to be comfortable with and, um, balancing that idea of like inspiring people hopefully but also not like I don't want to blow smoke up anybody's ass like the reason why I can still continue to skydive um, at a much lower kind of like frequency is because I was skydiving for um, 
let me see. I'm not too good at math. I was skydiving for five years before I got sick, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's kind of this mix of like trying to be inspirational, but also not really because <laughs> I believe in like just being honest with people, right? Yeah, I think yeah. You see that a lot on social media now and some people like that's not for them because they're like, oh, that's too much. But for me, I, I really benefit from it. I like people who are just very honest about kind of like where they are and the challenges they're dealing with. So you don't look on social media and think, oh my gosh, their life is perfect because no one's life is perfect. Right. And I, I really appreciate that authenticity. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of like in this space where I'm trying to figure things out. Um, I really have enjoyed like being an advocate for diversity in the outdoors is something I strongly believe in. I hope this community continues to grow. Um, yeah, I still identify as a skydiver. Am I skydiving every weekend like I used to? No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm definitely not. But do I take like some pride and like some strength and confidence from, you know, being a disabled person and still being able to jump? I do. Like for me, that is definitely like it's good for my heart. <laughs> it's, it's really encouraging for me. So, um, yeah, I guess I don't know if that answers your question, but <laughs> I don't know. I'm still right. working on myself. Uh, no, I don't. I don't know anybody. Any of us have a good idea of what's next for us. Uh, but uh, anyway, I, I'm glad uh, to have had the time today, Danielle. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and most of all, tell someone else you think might like it. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at martin underscore bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle, off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.